The Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine, and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel, and Bill Tate. Doctors, welcome to the uh, first episode of Doc Doc Goose in the Bro Show Bayside uh, podcast studio. I just listened to the intro again and you said, an examination. <laughs> it's so <laughs> nerdy. Why have we got that in the intro? Well, I, I gave you an alternative intro. You didn't want to, you, you guys didn't want to use it. <laughs> We're meant to be the nerds, mate. Yeah, You true. keep on telling us that. That's true. Anyway. <laughs> so first episode. Yeah, exciting. Should be fun. Yeah, you nervous, Mac? Yeah, always. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. You got high standards to live up to. What you guys? (laughs) (laughs) I'm relaxed. (laughs) So we've got an interesting topic, probably very topical. We're doing this right in the middle of the rollback from the COVID nineteen crisis. Well, we hope. We hope this is the rollback, but uh, as we stand, this is the rollback, and hopefully, it's the one and only we do. But yeah, it's really obviously turned everything on its head. The Olympics been moved, which is probably the area that's been the main focus for us, but obviously all the massive economic and health considerations. And right through that time, the AIS has released uh, a, an update of its white paper around the considerations for reloading of athletes, really timely. And I know, Rod, you've had a lot um, of input into that. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk through the white paper and and what it means and how it might be used and and maybe get some of our impressions as to as to how it goes. Yeah, I'm really interested to go through this because uh, of course we're talking a lot in in the sports med field about all the injuries that are going to happen because of course we've all been differently loaded during this time and a lot of the team sports stopped. People are training yeah. by themselves. Um, and also a lot of people's time has been spent differently. So for example, if you're working from home, you're not commuting. Um, you've got more time on your hands. You're doing different exercise. And we're seeing all sorts of different injuries. We're seeing people using exercise as kind of mental health management yeah, as therapy. well. We're seeing overuse injuries. Um, There's yeah, some so great to that too. I mean, we've never seen more people down on Beach Road just around the corner here on bikes yeah. and running and walking with their kids. But... Yeah. So yeah. that's in the community. But as far as elite sport goes and returning back to what we what the old normal was which is the new covid normal as we're saying but i'm interested to know how the aos has gone about this because it's going to be really important for the industry over the next six months to 12 years 12 a long time yeah yeah well as you say my running's never been going better at the moment because i've got so much time on my hands but i am ready to (laughs) pop a a calf muscle or not another Achilles. Achilles or something um so yeah touch wood that i haven't just put the moz on myself but yeah, I'll be you know, having had the opportunity to contribute to some of the work around this. I'll be really interested to hear sort of your guys' impressions um, as well. So, yeah. Ripper, well, you're going to lead us through it. We'll get stuck into it right now. So, Rod, give us a little bit of a background on, on this paper. So, uh, initially it was released, uh, the first version, a couple of years ago. 2015. Yeah. yeah. By the, I think by the same uh, – under the same name, essentially – um, but this is a really big revamp. How did we get to to this? Yeah, so, yeah, it was a paper came out, um, this white paper came out in 2015 around because we were seeing a lot of injuries uh, when athletes were reloading after either a planned break or an unplanned break, you know, from injury or 
the end of a season, that sort of thing. Um, and so they thought to put some guidelines around how to you know, potentially safely do that, some considerations was a good idea. And they did that based off the evidence that was available at the time. Um, and then in the last probably year or so, there's been a lot of questions around the acute chronic workload ratio, which a lot of the recommendations from the initial paper were um, first sort of based around. Um, and so, you know, essentially without getting into too much of the nerdy details, uh, sort of the evidence has moved on from there and, and suggested that, you know, potentially that's not the best practice way to, to monitor uh, training load. And there was a lot of people using it for injury prediction and risk and things of that nature. And now the, the evidence suggests that that's probably not the, the case. And there's what some of the things we were seeing there were potentially artifacts as opposed to, you know, mm. real hard, firm So when data. I was rowing, for example, you used to always pull up like the training peaks graphs where you'd have this is your chronic training load and this is your acute load. And if my acute load was too high over my chronic, you would say, well, how are you feeling? Because you should actually be pretty flawed right now. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're a good example because we, you, you were quite predictable often in your responses and we can get into that later with regards to the differences in sports and the differences between athletes, um, you know, even within the same sport. Um, but yeah, that, that's what we're doing. And that's not to say that that approach is wrong. It, still, that, that certainly has some value. Um, but using some of the modelling that was used in the initial paper and some of the recommendations that were given, um, that specific technique and analysis and prediction model and so on probably has been shown to be a bit flawed. And it, it, I think we're talking maybe a little bit of two different things because the, the acute um, uh, chronic ratio is, is essentially one over the other, whereas what you're talking about is the training stress balance, which was a different formula wasn't it? Oh, okay. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, it's the same same idea. Looking, considering what you've done recently against what your more long term chronic history of training is to to give a sense of how well you're going to cope with how far you're overreaching. My language, I know it's not completely correct, but one has a more sophisticated algorithm. The other one is just literally one number over the other number and divided. Yeah, well, the, what we used to do in Training Peaks was they're both fairly simple. One is the acute workload so what you've done in the last seven days is how it works minus um what you've done more chronically so training peaks works it out as a as a 42 day rolling average um and the other one is one divided by the other mm. and um the way that this is done is the the chronic workload is 28 days as opposed to 42 so they're both fairly simple um probably one of the problems with the the ratio approach was that there was a lot of research coming out suggesting that you can predict injury and prevent injury by using it and, and p potentially some people were maybe using those rules a little bit too hard and yeah, fast as opposed to considerations. Bullet, don't we? But there's no yeah. silver we, bullet. Yeah, we wanted, we wanted a number potentially that could sort of tell us train or don't train, modify or don't. And um, yeah, so we were kind of essentially wanted to move away from that approach. Um, and so it was, it was timely in two senses, essentially, the revamp of this paper. One was... Uh, the AS decide to move away from the acute chronic workload ratio and remove it from our athlete monitoring systems based on all the evidence that was coming out suggesting it's not best practice anymore. Um, and then obviously the COVID situation hit um, where suddenly we were in a very real life scenario where athletes will be, you know, potentially, and in many cases is occurring, deloading, um, whether that be from 
globally their total training volume or, or, or training loads or specific types. types. Yeah, yeah mm. so which we can get into in a bit more detail. So really it was – in the end it was a perfect storm of – yep. And I guess the reason why the question started to be asked because practitioners were coming to the likes of myself and some of the other national leads asking, um, you know, okay, this is the situation that we're in now. Um, can we still refer to – to this paper, this is probably something we would have referred to in this scenario. Is that still valid given the removal of this ratio from the AMS? And all these sort of questions uh, start to surface. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of got together as a group and with the original contributors to sort of say, yeah, look, people are asking for this and it probably needs a bit of an update. And yeah, yeah. it was actually a pretty cool process in the end. We got a lot of contributors across lots of disciplines, you know, from sports science, sports yeah. medicine, mm. um, and, you know, from different sporting backgrounds, different organisations. Yeah, it ended up being a great process to go through. And, and you can tell reading it, 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 it looks at the, the athlete from any number of different perspectives trying to almost give that sort of complete, th- I guess, the 360, where's that buzzword button, but 360-degree view of it. It's, it's quite an extensive look, really, in a, what is a fairly succinct summary um, so the, yeah. the paper's titled Considerations of Training Load in Relation to Loading and Unloading Phases of Training uh, from May 2020 and we will post it as part of the show notes so that people can have a look at it but it's also available obviously on the AIS website and has been widely distributed. So Rod, I thought maybe the best way of doing this is if we just sort of walk through a little bit of it step by step and you can maybe talk to some of the thinking and... and Doc, we're really interested to get your perspective because you're relatively fresh in looking at this as well. Yes, I have sort of read it. <laughs> no, but I suppose no, I it's very good. Uh, you know, it's quite familiar to to to, to myself, and I, I think obviously to Rod. You know, we went for a, a wander and a coffee the other day, social distanced, but we we stood a meter and a half apart down uh, Mentone Beach and had a chat through it. And it's stuff, you know, it's stuff we talk about all the time. It'd be really interesting to get you relatively fresh out of athlete space to to give us that perspective on it yeah yeah cool cool well kick us off rodney well i guess what do you want to know first um i guess the first part of the of the paper talks about the interdisciplinary planning of of strategy so it sort of really speaks to and this is a key bit within my role um that we're really trying to um i guess sort of get out there and promote people to be working in role model, people to be working in a much more interdisciplinary way. It's one of the key things that in my new role and within my team that we're hearing from a lot of um, you know, performance managers and, and performance directors and whatnot that this is an area that they feel that there's an opportunity for their teams, their performance teams to do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, not to say that people aren't working in an interdisciplinary manner, but, uh, you know, it has been identified as as an area we can improve on as a system. Um, and so, yeah, it, it sort of speaks to that, you know, when re- athletes are reloading, um, you know, I obviously think of it with my lens as a physiologist and the things that I understand that I've seen um, and my experiences and observations in that role. Um, but then obviously you've got strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, you know, biomechanists. It, it was really interesting going through this approach when we were discussing this and the biomechanist chimes in and sort of says, well, have you thought about, you know, impact loading um, and and how you would measure that in a runner. It's like, well, no, I haven't because <laughs> I've not done that before. I've not thought to do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of to really do this in a best practice way, in a world-leading way, which is what we're all driving to do in, in our system, 
we really need to be thinking in this interdisciplinary way because you can't just cover things off with only looking at it from one direction. And, and one of the things that I pick up on that, it starts with a sentence, um, effective planning can, be, uh, can enhance the interdisciplinary approach that is led by the coach of the program. And it finishes and it talks about the coach leadership. And we always hear this coach-led approach what I, you know, when I when I pushed it out to our coaches, it was it was almost saying, well, this is this is obviously targeted to kind of give the support team a really broad view of all the considerations, but it is actually saying, you know, there is a big responsibility on coaches to to lead this and engage really openly with their teams to get the best out of out of the team. So it is it is targeted primarily towards the service providers, isn't it? So not the coaches. Yeah, well, this document, it's a good question because we had a lot of discussion around who is the target audience for this mm. bit of work. Um, and actually, the last time that this was made, they sort of did it in a similar way, but they had the time ultimately to be able to do a little bit more, was that the the broader document ended up being targeted towards sports science, sports medicine practitioners mm -hmm. as a way to be able to recalibrate their, their thinking, spark some discussion within their performance teams and then also be able to spark that conversation with their coaches. Yeah. Because as you say, the coach is the person that's tying all of these strings mm -hmm. together. They've got the, the bird's eye view of everything that's going on um, and ultimately the buck sort of stops with them. They're going to make the, sort of the key decisions at the end of the day. Mm. Um, so it was designed to be able to help start those conversations and get that process happening. But because I had a little bit more time to deliver something, we had a really quick turnaround due to the circumstances of getting this out. Um, at that time, they also had a, just a one-pager that was targeted towards coaches. So okay. this time around, we, we didn't get to that. Um, but, yeah, potentially there's going to be some further work in, in this sort of area, a bit, bit more globally, and maybe we'll address that there. I um, think that then that's still really interesting, though, because – people are very good at working in their silo and their, their industry. And so exactly what you said, like if you've got a, a bird's eye view of something, then you need to understand who's the expert in which area. And when this is targeted to service providers, it means that if you've got a physio who's, can, who's managing the return to loading, they're also thinking about, well, what's the pathology of this injury and what other services do I need? It might be dietitian or something like that. Um, it might be physiology because we just need to build the load in, in a more strategic way. So um, I think service providers particularly need to work interdisciplinary and making sure you understand what's your, what's your expertise and, and where you can actually learn and get advice from other people. Yeah, absolutely. And all you need to do is start a conversation like this with your full support team and you'll see that there's some really good contributions coming from people that you might not have thought would necessarily contribute to a topic like this. I think sort of historically training load monitoring has been done by the sports scientists or the, you know, the physiologist, maybe the strength and conditioning coach, depending on the, the sport, the, the type of sport it is. More and more physios is now starting to get involved, which is great. Like I said before, biomechanists had some really good and interesting opinions. Obviously, sports medicine has got some really valuable things to contribute there. But, you know, nutrition as well. How are you, are you fueling to be able to manage the new loads that you're putting on? Um, you know, either enough or you know if you're doing lower loads are you you know for body composition purposes and so on and so on there's psychological elements to it as well um mm. when going through different things like that so um yeah all, all you need to do is sit down properly with your team and you'll see pretty quickly that people have got some really interesting things to contribute mm. Mm. and uh, one of the things that uh, and language is really important in these sort of things it's termed interdisciplinary and i think 
people used to throw around interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary in the same sort of, you know, the same thing, but they're quite different. You know, the multidisciplinary really, I think, refers to you have a lot of different parts and they sort of work together, but they, they might not integrate. The interdisciplinary is one unit that has a number of different lenses, you know, whether it's physiology, biomechanics, strength and conditioning, nutrition, sports med, all that sort of stuff. For sure. And that, that, was, that was very purposeful, mm. um, the language, not just in this document, but in everything we do in, in my team um, and, you know, working out with our colleagues in the network, that's very purposely we use that word of interdisciplinary. Anyone can have a multidisciplinary team. You just get people from multiple disciplines and you put mm. them together. But um, to truly work in an interdisciplinary way is, is actually not that easy to do. That's There's super some... interesting. Like I, in my hospital time when mm. you are talking about oncology, right, so you might bring the multidisciplinary team together. You do, yep. With radiology, oncology, surgical teams, um, you know, your radiation oncology, your medical oncology, they're all multidisciplinary teams. Mm, that's what MDM. it's called, yeah. I know. We got it wrong the whole time. Well, no, well, wrong. I, and, and uh, you know, un, unfortunately, it's, it's I, I had a little and bit of experience use. around that. But yeah. they seem to function like interdisciplinary teams. But I think in sport, the the risk is, you know, the analogy I always try and use is, um, you know, a, a performance problem is identified by the coach and the athlete. Mm. It should be fed into a funnel and spun around with all these different providers, you know, bashing it out and a and a – considered performance solution or series of options gets pumped out the bottom of the funnel back to the coach. Yep. That's how it should work, I think. The risk of the multidisciplinary team is it just looks like that cl classic kind of almost like a spider graph with the coach and the athlete in the middle and a whole lot of arms reaching out to physiology and nutrition and S&C. Yeah. And maybe they co-intersect at times, but but the risk is maybe they don't. And and I think that that, that can lead to greater problems. And what I took from this document and we've sort of talked all the advice but not the best advice. Yeah, exactly. The best advice is a considered and multifaceted um, piece of um, advice, not a, you know, I can give you a great piece of perspective from my lens but I'm only looking at it from this direction. So this is a, you know, a, a well-considered and well-rounded piece of information that's come back to the coach and the athlete as a potential performance solution. Mm. It sounds like semantics, but I think it's really important to be specific around it. And what I liked about reading this, is, and as we go through it, this will come out, I think, is it's not so much telling the physiologists the options that might be available, because they know, but it's letting the, you know, maybe the physiotherapist know the things that they might be able to ask the physiologist to consider um, around options that, that the, the you know, a physio wouldn't be an expert in and might necessarily know all of the options that a physiologist might consider. Yeah, I mean, that's the exact reason why we have, we try to have experts within all the disciplines as part of performance teams because nobody knows everything and everybody's got something to contribute from their expertise, experiences and, and so on. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that doesn't happen as well as maybe it could, um, you know determined by you know potentially how much time people have in the sport you know like as an example yeah alice you know you know your fte with with your role in you know as the sports doc yeah, might exactly. be really really small like i might be full-time physiology and rowing and we yeah. only might get you for half a day a week and some places are fee for service so you see athletes appointment wise rather than being employed for a whole day to do meetings and stuff exactly yeah, yeah. so which it's a really important which is the proactive consider. approach the proactive health approach. <laughs> mm, yeah, but no, I mean, anyway, it, not it sounds got simple. Full of money. Yeah, no, but it it does it 
that that one is really interesting because it seems like it's efficient to go. Um, we we go from an a, a, a contact with athlete and we pay for that, but in the long run, it's it costs a lot more because you don't have that forward thinking, proactive, integrated approach. Yeah. Yes, and I think you're seeing correct. a lot uh, like all all high performance sport is trying to move away from from that mm. into the more proactive approach. Mm. Because it allows for these conversations. Exactly, which are critical. I mean, when we worked together in rowing, the the best, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best use of your time, Rod, sitting in the car with me for two hours rolling up and down just watching what was going on. But that's where almost all of our ideas kind of mm. developed. You you asking me, what are you trying to achieve there? Uh, have you ever thought about this? Me mulling it over and, and then getting back to work and going, right, let's get... Johnny from S&C, let's get Fuxi in, let's talk about this properly and come up with an approach. And you don't get to do that if you don't have the time to do it. Yeah, for sure. That's a key thing. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about that a lot in our system. Obviously, VIS has made some really good steps in that direction, specifically other places are as well. Um, but yeah, having people around and being immersed in the performance team is critical for just those conversations. Yeah, It's actually interesting because from the sports doctor point of view, I spent the day yesterday with Pip Inge doing a project and she was saying that the thing is with sports medicine, often you spend a bit of time sitting back not doing much, mm. but then when uh, the proverbial shit hits the fan, it's very busy. So then the time is spent, you know, coordinating a response from a whole lot of different areas, um, writing letters, doing phone calls, organising things. But, I mean, that all happens in one go. So it's actually, I mean, even from my uh, profession, it's actually quite efficient to spend time in the network. So you've got those relationships. So you can just pick up the phone, so you can send a text. Mm. What should we do about this? What do you think about this? This is the current update on this athlete. This is what the training program's doing. I think we can think about some preventative stuff or whatever. It's much better use of time to be involved. It is. Mm, no doubt. Well, let's roll through it, Rod, and, and maybe you can guide us through. But I guess the, the sort of some of the key findings to start off with, just to prime it, effective planning, planning, load and monitoring the individual training response can enhance training exposure and improve performance. Pretty self-explanatory, but but important. Consistent training availability increases athletes' capacity to perform both um, team and individual sports. So I guess that's saying, um, you know, you can't adapt to training if you don't do training, mm. not in one sense. <laughs> Fairly simple, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and it, you know, I've said to you, I think at times that gets that's a bit of a redundant statement. Like it's like, you know, you can't eat without opening your mouth, sort of thing. Obviously. <laughs> You have to train to to get some benefit from it, but it talks to almost the hierarchy of needs. If if the athlete isn't there to do the training because they've been, um, we won't say mismanaged, but not optimally managed and and fallen into an injury or an illness situation, they're obviously not going to get any training done. Yeah, and I, I think the key word in that is consistent. Um, yeah. And I literally just thought Absolutely. of this now as we were talking this. When I was in New Zealand, I worked with the kayaking team. We had some pretty good athletes there. And there was one guy who had a massive VO2 max, huge. They called him the aerobic man. And for his <laughs> VO2 max was well over 70, which for kayaking is, is really, really high because you're not using that much yeah. muscle mass. Yeah, you don't have legs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And um, 
<laughs> you know, this great guy, this guy, but he was maybe a little bit inconsistent with his training. And I remember he came, I'd heard all about this guy. He wasn't based where I was based. He came up, we did a lab test with him and he was, it was much more like 60 as VO2 max, which is the same as everybody else. And I was like, okay, heard a lot about this guy, but I'm not seeing the same numbers as they saw. Then he did a really solid three-month training block with, with everybody and did, did everything for three months straight. And his VO2 max popped back up to 70. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, great. This is where it is. But his performances weren't – he was still quite inefficient with that ability and, and all those sorts of things. So he was still – he had a lot of work to do to, to turn that physiology into speed, right? And I remember him sort of saying to me, he's like, oh, I've done all this work, but, like, I'm still miles off the rest of the group. And I was like, mate, you've done three months of training. You need to do that for another – Three years. Yeah. So, you know, if you really want to catch up and overtake these guys, which all of our lab testing suggests that maybe you're the most gifted physiologically out of anyone in this group, you need to put those three months together for six months, but then a year and then two years. And, then, you know, that's mm-hmm. going to make you a world-class athlete. So, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's obvious yeah. you have to train to get good, but the, yeah. that consistent aspect yeah. is, is really important. It, it's the most underrated because it's so unsexy, but it's it's the thing that that um, is almost the most common factor in achieving athletes is training consistency. Yeah, yeah, it's boring, but that's that's yeah. the reality of it. <laughs> uh, so the third one is there is an increased risk of injury um, when reloading after planned or unplanned periods of unloading if the volume, intensity, and frequency of training are accelerated quicker than the athlete's ability to adapt to the training stress. <laughs> Yeah, again, it, it sounds... Do you remember we used to have that thing after a break after Christmas called Shock Week? I don't think, I don't think we ever did that with you, but yes, I do remember Shock Week. Shock Week was a terrible idea. You should shock reload week, gradually. Shock Week, Shock Week, Shock Week. <laughs> shock Week was awful um, and it did predispose to injury, I think, for the next month or so. But yeah. um, So, Shock Weeks can be super effective and there's lots of good science around them. Okay. However, you need to plan them appropriately. You don't just do them after a two-week break over Christmas. Usually usually you build up to them and then you can do quite a hard. So there is some, uh, actually quite a bit of evidence around those them working really, really well. However... Keep well, the body guessing can, kind of thing. Well, no, not necessarily. You watched dodgeball last week, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah. You can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. But um, no... It's, it's true it's, it's though. A huge like, overload Big stress. training camps, you know... As, as long as they're well thought out, the difficulty is or where people fall into traps is I think they they think that just smashing load into people is it. But it's the almost artistic ability to be able to smash right onto that bleeding edge of, of what's going to the break line, them. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fatigue and injury. Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, putting a lot of training to someone's very easy. Mm. Like getting them to adapt to that training is very hard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's the key. Yeah, exactly as you say. You can smash somebody in training and see them not get all that much better and maybe get injured. Um, but if you manage it properly and you prescribe it and you, you know, at, at an individual level, mm. people, you know, you can optimize the response. And the fourth point there is that the time required to return to full training load is proportionate to the length of time reduced workload uh, of the reduced workload and the amount of training completed during the unloading period. So I guess that's saying that if you've been unloaded for a longer period of time, it's going to take longer for you to get back and you need to be more patient and, and have a longer um, lead into ramping training back up. Yeah, and um, you probably experienced that trying to do some running now. 
Bill in the last little bit of time. Yeah, 43 40 years, years of not, not running. <laughs> when I'm 86, I might be flying. <laughs> it's not built for running. No, definitely not. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not how fast you go, you know. It's how much adaptation I can get out of it. Isn't that right, Rod? Mm. Shock <laughs> session every session. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just put that on your Strava. I know that I'm going slow, but I'm adapting. <laughs> <laughs> I might just make that my byline on Strava. <laughs> yeah. All right. So interdisciplinary planning strategies, Rodney. Um, talk us through that. So understanding the athlete and their readiness to train and training history and the environment. Yeah, so this, this just speaks to the individual response. So kind of as we were talking before, Mac, um, you know, with our monitoring with you, we, you, you sort of tended to follow a pretty predictable pattern. When you hit certain volumes that weren't managed or loads that weren't managed in the right way, we would say you get some sort of injury. Um, and so, however, we had you know, some other athletes in the program, you know, like one of my favourite athletes who I like to call the cyborg because he's half bear and half human. I don't know if we should name him by name, but... He um, won't mind. He won't mind. So uh, our mate Josh Booth, who's kicking goals as a, <laughs> as a doctor now and doing all sorts of things, Superman. Um, but he could do whatever he wanted and basically never, <laughs> almost never got injured. So, you know, I would say numbers that for you, Mac, would alarm me because we'd seen with your history, from your training history and your, um, your injury history, those would be reg flags. However, with Boothie, we saw the same numbers we didn't even blink. We just kind of kept on going um, because we knew that really, really big individual differences. So there's a you know, whole list of different things that you need to consider. Um, but, you know, e even two athletes in the same sport, we've got a heavyweight male and a lightweight female. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different things that you need to consider that are going to make up the differences in you as an athlete and how you're going to cope with that load um, and how are you going to return to, to your normal training loads? And I think as, as the athlete it's yourself, I mean, you spend so many years intricately knowing how you feel, what your body's doing. And um, yes, you need to ride the line of fatigue to get better. And I think asking an athlete to slow down is probably one of the hardest things that they want to hear. Of course, you don't want to be not doing training when everyone else is training. But you do get quite good at reading your body um, and you do sort of understand that, like, I'm on the line here, I'm really tight, I'm really sore, um, I reckon I need a bit of a break, like I need the weekend off or something. And it's about the, uh, the ability to have the conversation and not just like, nah, but the numbers say that you can keep going. So it, it's a bit about um, incorporating some of the softer signs, not just the numbers. So I'm really glad that this paper's looking further. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, we would often get prescribed 25 or probably 30-hour training weeks. And I honestly felt quite a lot of the time in the big weeks that I was just flogging a dead horse and I'm just going through the motions and I'm not actually making many gains at all and your heart rate's suppressed when you're trying to do hard workouts. And you're just like, I actually know when I'm training 20 hours a week that I can hit numbers, but I'm tired, but I can still hit numbers. Whereas if you put the extra hours on sometimes... I found it and I was guess just not working. You're, what you're talking to is the concept of adaptation rather than work done. Yeah. Like you, 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 and I remember you used to say it was a sweet spot, whether it was 18 or 20 hours, you felt like in that range you were working hard enough to continue to tell your body you needed to get better but not so much that your body then didn't have the resources to continue to build on, on yeah. the base that you had, I yeah. suppose. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the interesting things, Rod, on that, and Alice is a good example, I think, as an athlete, you know, I remember we had some significant training volumes that we would put into her at times, but we would use different training modes to be able to keep that volume up. So I think that that's probably relevant to talk to. That's a key part, yeah. And that we find that later on down in this paper. Is right, that, sorry, I jumped you know, ahead. No, no, it's, it's, it goes, goes right here as well, is that, you know, potentially there could be athletes that are doing the exact same training loads in total that they ordinarily do. So, you know, if you think, of, you know, the Vixen's just back in the VIS gym this week, um, you know, they could be doing, they're all set up to do gym at their at their home. So they could be doing the same sort of gym volumes. They could be just as strong and explosive and so on as they ordinarily are. Um, they may even be fitter from a cardiovascular point of view because they're not on court. They can do a whole lot more running potentially. So, you know, there's every chance that they might come back actually fitter from, a, from an aerobic point of view, but they haven't, been changing directions with rapid force they haven't been you know accelerating mm. decelerating they haven't been you know jumping and landing yeah, look at, out you know, tendons, eh? all those sorts of things so you could look at their training load numbers and go oh yeah they've held these up really really high we're ready to roll but from a specificity point of view it's it's not specific whatsoever and we saw some things in 2016 preparing for olympic trials that i didn't expect at all and that probably showed what I knew about rowing at the time was we were looking at all our training load numbers going, yeah, we're, we're right here. That There's no sort of real red flags here. But we had some of our female sweep athletes that going between sweeping and sculling and suddenly we started getting some rib injuries. And the first thing I did obviously was look at all my monitoring data and I'm like, I can't explain this, what's going on? And then from discussing it with yourself, Bill, and with Fuxi and so on, it's like it's potentially the change in movement. So hmm. even within the sport of oh, rowing, totally. the specificity of sculling versus sweeping had a really big impact on on injury risk and yeah. occurrence in the end. So when That's it's that nuanced... That's a factor, isn't it, in rib stress injuries? It's changing sides, changing from sweep to scull. It's the different loading on the thoracic cage. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, this, this paper goes into quite a bit of detail around ensuring that when you're reloading, don't just think about the absolute load. You need to be thinking about the specific um, aspects of that load and the movements and, and all those different sorts of things. You know, for example, there's a really good example about um, uh, water polo players and the, um, what's it called? Egg beater kick. Yeah, the egg beater kick. Yeah. Um, so, oh, yeah, geez, I never would have thought of that. But some of those really small things can play a big, big role, big difference. So the training history and the environment, obviously, I think they're pretty familiar to, to any coaches and athletes. I guess there are, there are other things though as well. The, the next point is nutrition and health factors. So in terms of, in terms of that, in terms of obviously the, the matching the, the type of nutrition required, but it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, well, it can be a whole range of things. So it's, you know, are you at a very simple level, are you fueling for what you're doing? And quite often, um, you know, we, we have seen athletes who, you know, from an adaptation point of view, we've measured things like resting metabolic rate and energy availability and things like that and wondered why a certain athlete may not be responding to training and then measured that and it looks like, the, well, actually their energy availability is way lower than mm. what, it, what it should be for their size and gender yeah. and so on and so forth. And then, you know, sending them off to the, the nutritionist to talk through what they're doing and l look at what, what they're eating and so on and suddenly, you know, they start to take off with those sorts of things. But mm. just as importantly, um, you know, recovering from training and coping with the load, um, 
you know, to, to rebuild and so on, there, there can be potentially injury and illness risks associated with not, um, you know, fueling, not just from a total point of view, but with the right types of foods and, you know, nutrients and so on and so forth. Yeah, totally. Yeah, one of the things uh, that I, and I mentioned this to you when, when we had a chat on the beach that day, Rod, um, that I thought is, is touched on it, sort of covered in this space, but, but might not be mentioned in here is potentially some of the novel recovery things that you might put in place for an athlete specifically when you're trying to ramp them back to training in this kind of environment and the 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 way I'm thinking about it because this is I guess my philosophy around general training blocks when you're trying to achieve uh, physiological physical gains you might I would limit the amount of specific recovery stuff that we would do between training sessions because my very simplistic view of it is you're, you're trying to tell the body you need to get better immediately because you haven't coped with this training session, but it's okay and make you feel better by doing a recovery session. However, in a reloading phase, there might be a need to consider some of those novel uh, recovery um, methods that, you know, and people think about ice bars and that sort of stuff, but I'm thinking even like nutritional things that you might only really focus on using when you're trying to accelerate someone's uh, return to normal training. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll all be determined by, again, individual makeup, previous history, you know, training age, biological age, all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and what's next for you? When do you need to be ready by? How quickly do we need to try to get you back towards your normal training loads? But yes, yeah, certainly there are some things you can do from a nutritional point of view that put you in better stead to protect, to protect against injuries um, you know, from ligament injuries. Yeah, like to, you protein know, injection yeah, straight after training. Yeah, protein injection. Like but there's all sorts of other ones, you know, around, you know, potentially protecting against tendon injuries and um, things of that nature too. Mm. Mm. So the next one is current physical, technical, tactical and cognitive skill level. So obviously just trying to consider where the athlete's up to rather than just the memory of what they were like eight weeks ago when we were actually training. Yeah, and some of that is... Um, you know what? What are they? What are they mentally ready to do? Um, and also, I mean, in our current situation, it, this has been a difficult time for people. Mm. Um, you know, from a mental, psychological point of view. So, considering those sorts of things. Um, yeah. But and what's then, the goal? What's coming up? Yeah. And what are the reliable timeframes? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And and it's about you know not just adapting to to training from a physical you know physiological point of view but it's getting the most out of your training from potentially a technical tactical those sorts of things um you know i think i shared with you bill when i was working with the slalom kayaker a, a while ago it's they used to say to me that when the loads were too high for this athlete this athlete was really strong and robust and all those sorts of things and injury risk was never really a huge thing for them um but when the lo loads are really high he would just say to him he's like oh she's just been rubbish this week like we're not getting anything out of training from a technical point of view so it's like we may as well just not be doing these sessions because we're not we're not making the gains from a technical point of view that we're trying to make so yeah. it's considering those things too it's not just was that was that, that was the coach wasn't it that was the coach yeah. saying that so it's me. good yeah. insight from a, a successful coach isn't yeah it? yeah yeah I think a lot of people try and flog the dead horse at that point and I think that's a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that coach had won an Olympic medal himself mm. in that sport and went on to coach this athlete to an Olympic medal as well. So he was a really good sort of experienced campaigner there. 
Um, but yeah, there's just all these things to consider. And, and again, going back to the interdisciplinary thing, yeah. if as a physiologist, I'm just, all I'm thinking about is the physiology of this athlete, you might make a completely different recommendation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a good anecdote to that, and I'm not going to give too much away here, but uh, within one of our programs, uh, one of our providers who does, um, I guess, the performance lifestyle support, surveyed a group of athletes coming back into training on what you know the mentimeter where you can create like a survey and it gives yep. a, a word cloud and the the first word in the middle is excited but the third biggest word was anxious yeah so the, i was going to suggest that that was coming out loud and clear when when rod was just talking yeah yeah so there's a there's a real mix of excitement but anxiety in athletes and that i think talks to the mental readiness so they might be physically ready to go and one of the notes i've made here to to some of our coaches to consider is well some of them will have actually progressed like we had a young athlete who set a massive pb on on the bike you know um joined the 500 watt club for four minutes um as a young athlete and a significant step forward in this period of time and almost all those gains of you know i don't know i can't remember exactly the numbers but a significant step yeah yeah that's that's exactly it is that when Pressure makes diamonds, right? So when this crisis comes, people who are motivated often put their head down and train very well, yeah. very well. And you can go really hard for a certain amount of time and then you think, well, what is the next chapter? Like, do you crash or do you somehow taper it to be some sort of sustainable build? So in a perfect world, um, athletes and coaches will have been strategic and uh, and worked in this period of time on some weaknesses they never normally get to work on. Yeah. And so they might come back where they'll have diminished capacities in some things, but some other capacities may have gone forward and you need to consider both, I think, in, in returning to training. Yeah, that, that's actually been a big theme in my discussions with a lot of the physiologists, Triple SM staff around the country is that a lot of them are kind of going, well, there's huge opportunities here. Like I was talking with one of the athletics physiologists actually and he was saying, you know, often we're going from one competition mm. to another and traveling and all those sorts of things and none of these athletes have had this long of a training block uninterrupted to work on the things that they need to work on mm. um, really ever and was seeing some really good improvements in those sort of things. Um, but it's really sport specific, right? Like running – they yeah. go out and they run, right? You can it's do pretty it easy. This time. Yeah. You know, they're not in their training squad, so maybe there's not that squad element of it. Um, and you know, cycling similar. They're all smashing it out on their ergos and on Zwift and so on. And you know, maybe they're not doing the strength element to the same side that they were, but their fitness coming out the other side of this potentially could be huge. Um, you know, whereas you know, working in sailing, for example, it's yeah. a more a decision making sport than anything else mm. and they weren't able to get in a boat for however many weeks mm. so but that being said decision making and feel and you can't it, yeah you know, exactly water feel and boat feel you yeah. just can't replace yeah and you know we notice when we're talking about you know reloading from tr from periods of deloading and training we notice that most of our injuries that we see in sailing come from doing being unprepared potentially for doing lots of sailing um you know they don't generally get injured from doing gym or yeah. being on a what bike or, or cycling that sort of thing so it's been a different side of them mm. but on the other side every week we go through all of our athletes and look at their training for the last week and so on and the consistency in, in training that we've seen in the last 12 weeks i don't think we've ever seen before with this group because they're mm. you know they they spend 
often more than half of the year overseas, traveling from one place to another and competing and so on. So their ability to consistently train is, is not so high. So, mm. yeah, the, all of them are probably going to come out fitter than they've ever been, um, but they haven't been in a boat yeah. and of course, <laughs> making decisions. You know, I think it's easy to think of, you know, like physical injuries, but I guess the mental injury might be like confidence an injury to confidence in a sense like if you if you're physically amazing so imagine you're a sailor as an example and you've done this great block of physical prep and you get back and you've never been in such good shape and you can hike the hell out of that boat but you your actual boat feels a, a bit off and you're making bad decisions that you, you could take a real confidence hit if you're not set up to go no we're just going to take it easy it's going to take us a little while to build back that boat feel so don't expect too much and I guess confidence, a confidence injury is potentially as catastrophic to an athlete as a soft tissue injury or, or, yeah, or yeah, similar. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where really good coaching comes into it um, you know, because Max said it before, as an athlete, you want to work hard. You're motivated to work hard and you want to be performing well every single day. Um, but yeah, taking that step back and going, no, it's going to be a slower build this time around. I've probably not been out of a boat for this long ever before and having that support around you to kind of allow you to build back to that without mm. putting too much pressure on yourself uh, and losing that confidence is really key. Yeah. It's also probably a really good time to just throw in a little bit about, I should have said it in the health section as well, but when we're talking about mental wellbeing during this time and the athletes have had a total change in um, routine and a change in the time frame of goals and stuff, um, there is a tendency to go, right, I'm going to put my head down, I'm going to train hard. But you're doing this in isolation and you're doing this at home. You're doing this without your normal routine. So then there goes, there are, you know, if you if you jumped on Zwift and did Zwift all day, you'd get really fit, you'd have massive training loads. Now, what are you doing about the other side of things? You're trying to control your training. You might also be trying to control your nutrition. And so there's a huge element of this um, sense of trying to get control back where... Um, there's a, there's a real risk, and it's a, it's a current risk at the moment, of athletes developing disordered eating patterns. And then that manifests in some injuries that might pop up over the next little while. We're already seeing some stress fractures and things like that popping up. So that managing of the mental well-being as well is a huge side of coming back into it as well. Something yeah. that's difficult to measure. Um, Much more difficult to measure and less comfortable to talk about, but just as relevant. Yeah. Something we probably should have mentioned really off the bat is the Olympics were postponed by a year, right? Mm. And I think a lot of people, and I had conversations with, with people who really underestimated the toll that that postponement has taken on the athletes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, just speaking personally, you know, I love the Olympics. I look forward to it so much every four years that my TV doesn't go off Channel 7 for that you know, two-week period. And I felt a bit of a sense of loss. We, we lost our Olympics this year. Now, we're going to get one next year, hopefully. Um, but, but yeah. But when you but, lose but, a goal, yeah, or it gets postponed, things change. A, long, a year's a long time in a lifetime as well. You might have been just about to retire thinking I'm yeah. going to have, have a baby next year. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we know, it, we, we've sort of just seen it with, with our head swimming coach having to move back home for family reasons. They'd planned to move back home after the Olympics. Um, so we've, you know, had a change. There's a lot of things, you know, staffing mm. as, as well for, from an athlete perspective. Oh, but, and there'll be athletes as well, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit of loss around this, you know, imagine the people who are actually 
you know, or people have already been selected for the games. They've got they've stamped their ticket. They're ready to go. Yeah. Um, and now they're told that thing that you were was only a few months around the corner. You know, three or four months and around often, the corner. Often athletes are hanging on for it yeah, as well. You are, yeah. You definitely are. Um, yeah, I mean, you work so hard, and it's you can only operate with that intensity for so long. Yeah. Um, and now you've got to do it for another an additional mm. year to what you were planning on on doing it and it's um for some it'll be an opportunity you know i wasn't going to be quite ready and maybe i was going to be thinking okay this is a my first olympics and my second olympics will be my main one and now you think well actually i've got an 18 month lead in and i'm I'm going to be looking a lot better than i would be in a six month lead in yeah so some athletes will benefit but others will find it really challenging yeah and that's some that's the message that we've been trying to to push with that with the athletes and our teams is that okay this is the situation and of course, it wasn't what we planned for, but that's the reality now. There actually are some huge opportunities if we take take advantage of them. Um, so let's figure out what potentially those opportunities could be, um, and let's see if we can address them. Mm. So next section, Rodney, understanding the load, and I guess you know this is something you'd have quite a lot of experience on. The, the first point being um, the uh, what is the external load considered by the coach and the performance support team and the members required to achieve the performance and what is the internal load that might be expected to be induced and I guess the difference between the internal and external load and, and maybe you can talk to that because I think that's probably pretty critical in, in that point of un- understanding the load. Yeah, so they're, I mean, they're two different things, right? Um, you can get two people doing the same external. So when we say external load, that's essentially what did you do? Um, you know, how many kilometres did you run? Um, you know, how many, you know, case did you cycle, et cetera, et cetera, um, or whatever it might be. How many dives did you do if you, you know, mm. different Good sports? Diver, yeah. yeah. Um, but Soccer player. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Call of the day. Oh, jeez. Um, diver, diving. Yeah. No, I, I love soccer. Soccer friends. <laughs> Soccer's great. It, it, it's so easy that anyone can play and you, you can't really get hurt. Anyway, um <laughs> So, yeah, the, the external load, what, what you get two people to do and then how they actually cope with it. So the internal load, so that might be as a simple way to say that could be what's the heart rate response as an example or what's if you're measuring rating of perceived exertion as your load, um, internal load measurement, it could be something like that. So the external is what you did and the, the internal is well, how did your body go with, with that and they could be really different. Um, and so I guess the question here is, well, what is the external load that we know is the standard to be able to succeed in this sport? So, you know, whatever Benchmark your sport is, times or... well, not necessarily times, but, you know, if we know that you want to be, you know, a world-class rower, we'll talk about rowing because we all know about rowing. We know you need to do X number of kilometers a week as an example. You know, you're not going to get away with winning Does the Olympics. Does everyone do the same no, across I... the world? Probably not. I, I don't know. It's hard to know, but there there certainly would be there'd like be a, a mi- floor, there'd be a minimum know, a standard, minimum. and yeah. it changes over time. You know, like we we've seen with some of the stuff that, that was published on the men's Kiwi pair. You know and what it they were doing should change as you go through the age brackets too. For sure, uh, you know, from young to to senior, but then for senior to you know ready to peak. And, and you know, build is something you've spoken about a fair bit that you really need to build up to something, but then you can actually let that come back down. Um, in the back end of your career, we, we saw yeah. that with the men's Kiwi pair that if you looked at what they were doing when they won gold in Rio, 
and just try to replicate that. If you, you were an early, yeah, you probably wouldn't go very fast. But <laughs> they had put all the kilometres in the bank over, yeah. over the years. So, yeah. I guess what this is talking to is that you know the coaches are going to have in their minds what the what the external load benchmarks are for their sport or their individual athletes. You know, in, really in, well. In an ideal world, they'll know what the athlete needs to do. Exactly. So you know, with you working with Alice. You, you know, you might sort of say for, for a boothie, yeah, boothie, we need to smash in with 25, 30 hours of training a week. That's the benchmark for, for boothie. But for Alice, it's actually more like 16 to 20. Um, and so, but knowing what those are is really important because then you can plan for them and how you get to them. Um, but obviously, you're not going to dive straight into those. Um, and we want to see what the response, and, and this is something that I'm sort of really keen on getting to the bottom of and, and understanding better and promoting and that sort of thing is, how if we we can measure the load and what someone did that's easy but knowing how they responded to that that's what you're going to make your decisions off um, and that's probably one of the reasons why i was never really in favor of the acute chronic workload ratio mm. we spoke about at the top is mm. it tells you what you did but you can have two athletes that have the exact same numbers and respond completely differently yeah. so if you're going to make a prediction as to whether one of them is so going to get injured or not. So how do you do internal tracking? Is it things that we can measure like HRV or RPE or is the, it yeah, into your eyes and see if you're going okay or if you're All of those things. Dying? <laughs> well, yeah, all of those things. You know, a really good coach is going to have great intuition and know when to push and know when to hold back. Um, mm. But there are some objective measures that us science nerds like, you know, things like heart rate variability that gives us an understanding of how the, the body as a system is coping with Parasympathetic, training. Parasympathetic, parasympathetic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... So how is the body coping and potentially adapting to the load? Um, now, but now then you, you sent me a thing recently from Alan Cousins. Oh, Alan Cousins, yeah. Cousins that yep. said uh, it, it, it was just a simple graphic showing the correlation to performance of a whole lot of these things independently, which was pretty low, but then the correlation when you combine them all together, which was very really significant. High. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is, I guess, what we're what we have to understand is the more data points in a sense, the the more chance you're going to get a reliable um, measure or a reliable perspective. Yeah, and that's mm. kind of what we do. Um, and I think also they feed into each other so you can use them for education purposes as well Yeah, and say, I know you feel terrible, but look, your HRV is going pretty well. Are you going okay? What other stresses are going yeah. on? Like, so the look into the eyes is really valid. Yeah. And great coaches will use their experience and their expertise together to make that assessment, but it's not always going to be right. But that combined with HRV and understanding the training that's been done and considering their training performances and their and wellness and report yeah. and, and, and is going to give you a much more sense of confidence about where you that decision lies. Because listen if someone said, I'm really tired. And sometimes when someone said, my eyes are tired, you just ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of yours? <laughs> I never oh, said oh, that. No, no, I, no, no, I do remember. You know that was <laughs> one of our She favorites. may be listening. Uh, probably not. Um, but um, without <laughs> jumping ahead, that's probably where that schematic at the end comes in really well. Yeah. So. The bit that I really love at the bottom of this is it sort of says, you know, consider the expected fitness fatigue health. Um, what, what does that say? Response. 
Um, and so, so you, you know, expect someone to be tired yeah, if you're doing a, a certain load into them. Yeah, you might be expected to be tired. We yeah. might you might expect to feel like rubbish. You might you might expect that their training performance is poor because yeah, you're trying exactly. to lay something into them. Yeah. And that's I think that's something that's not often talked about. It's okay that you're groveling at the moment. It's okay you're in the hole as long as we all know there's a plan to to get back out. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah. expected. And, and that's where it comes down to when the the dose and the response relationship is out of whack as to what you might expect. And I guess it kind of comes to that first point of the external load versus those internal load measures when they're really out of whack. That's when you know that, okay, maybe we need to intervene here and change our plan. Um, But, you know, if we've got all of our different things that we're looking at measuring using our intuition and so on that suggests that, yep, okay, you might be really, really tired and not enjoying it at the moment, but we've got no, we're expecting that and there's nothing here saying that we shouldn't press on with this plan. Now, there might be something that pops out that suggests, you know, suddenly, you know, your ratings of fatigue or soreness are through the roof or your, um, you know, your heart rate variability is super duper low, way lower than normal, not just a little bit. And your resting heart rate's way higher than normal. We've got all these red flags. Yeah. Then we would say, oh, that response is actually a bit extreme as to what we expected. You know, we expected something like this, but not to this magnitude. Maybe we do need to address this um, and maybe we do need to pull back and we are at risk of something, injury, illness, mm. maladaptation, whatever. Um, but that's, I think, really important to, to think and understand mm. um, is that it's okay to be outside of your normal areas for all of those things. But if it's expected and there are no sort of red, red flags, we can carry on. Yeah. Mm. The second section talks about considering the many loads – uh, sorry, the many forms of loading when training. And I think we talked to that um, earlier, but but maybe just that, that example around um, a particular load done in one mode um, might look different if you supplement it with different types of training to achieve the same sort of load. And that might be a different way of modulating the return to training. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of what we spoke to before, that different lo- types of loads, the specificity of those loads can have a different impact on the, those responses. So um, finally you're allowed to get back on the water. You actually go, awesome, but we're not going to do that for 12 sessions a week. We're actually going to do that for four sessions a week, then five sessions a week, and then build it up and supplement with what bike or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the key. That's sort of that key point that Bill was saying is, um, yeah, having some a proactive approach around that mm. so that you're, you're still achieving some of the, I guess – physiological loads that mm. you're trying to get without uh, achieving Stressing the structural loads. Tendons yeah. Yeah, structure, exactly. And the, the third section talks to understanding the monitoring um, of the individual training response. And, and I think you've talked to that as well, Rod, in terms of um, the different types of monitoring that might be used. But I guess it's yeah, the way I've been thinking about it is every data point has its own perspective and it's the intersection of all those perspectives where you've got the best confidence around making a good decision or a good recommendation. Yeah, and I think, like you said it really well before when sort of saying, yeah, each of those points when combined together can help you answer the question, but often only one of them doesn't really tell you anything. Um, You know, and I remember talking when we had Anna Holt, our PhD student who actually moved into my role in the rowing program doing a much better job probably than I ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, she found within her master's thesis that when you measure different things, they tell you different things. So if you expect 
<laughs> all the things that you're going to measure will tell you, give you the exact same answer. It's, we don't see that. And just recently I, I read a paper that was trying to compare the responses from a neuromuscular point of view. So maybe doing some of the testing that you might have done in the gym with John or, yeah. or Harry from a neuromuscular um, function and fatigue point of view and correlating that with heart rate variability. And they found that the correlation was really low. So, well, yeah, because they're two different things. Yeah. Um, so both are valuable. Does your autonomic nervous system do your reflexes? No, probably not. Yeah. So there's there's some relationship there between the two but that one doesn't fully explain the other and vice versa so if you only measured one you you wouldn't have the whole picture because yeah. i might measure your hrv for example and go yeah mac this looks completely fine off you go and then we leave it there but then you go and do a test with john and he tells you well actually your new muscular function is is way lower than it ordinarily is that mm. tells us something about your fatigue state and the type of fatigue that that you've mm. got and potentially we use that information to to then you know guide our our decision it's so interesting like i think even when we were using some of those heart rate tracking um devices can we use brand names on this show yeah like whoop for example um and you you're shifting so I was using it while I was doing some shift work. So I was doing day shifts, night shifts. And when you do the time zone, you just feel like absolute crap. Like if you ask me to perform and do an ergo test the morning after I've done a night shift, oh, my God, it would be horrendous. But WHOOP seems to think, yeah, heart rate variability is okay. And so if you only looked at the HRV, you'd be like, right, no, good to go. But because you haven't slept for 24 hours, your neuromuscular stuff would be rubbish. So... Yeah, you need to be really careful about which measures you use and certainly that's not detracting from WHOOP's value because um, I think there there's a huge um, role for it and, and also easy, wearable, trackable stuff. But um, you do need to measure everything because otherwise the athlete's going to tell you they feel terrible even though you're telling them that the numbers are okay. Yeah, and that's the value of even simple things like soreness, right? Like, and I had the same experience in a different way was I think right around the time I started wearing this, this work that I've got now, um, I, I think, you know, I was doing a fair bit of running and that sort of thing, but I hadn't done the gym in a little while. And I hit the gym for the first time in a couple of months and I had the worst doms. <laughs> I could barely move the next day. Yeah. And my heart rate and heart rate um, variability were excellent. You, you know, I was 98% recovered or Fully whatever. Recovered. <laughs> Fully recovered to take on a really high strain, but I couldn't move. <laughs> so um, yeah, the, measuring different things and you're getting mm. really different responses for different systems so taking into account and you know it sort of outlines a few examples of the things you know valid questionnaires um from a wellness point of view you know things like fatigue and yeah. um you know mood state and soreness etc you know yeah. heart rate variability neuromuscular function um you know things like you know from a physio point of view things that you probably did with Fuxi, like you know range of range of movement you know yeah that's a critical one i wanted to make sure that we mentioned that one too like if you've been uh, not um, doing an activity that stretches your hamstrings and then you go back into something that requires a certain amount of range, well, you predispose yourself to, um, you know, tendon strain, to um, tissue strain. So whether there's return to sport criteria that after a period of deloading, do you need to get back to this certain overhead throwing range so that you can do things safely? Like, do we set... Do we do some pre-testing about... Um, we should do that. We should have some baseline well, numbers on Well, it's on funny things. you say that because one, one of the things that I noted in there was the rescreening process. So, for instance, our divers are going through an extensive re physical rescreening process before they can start doing their 
regular activities because they pretty well rested. They've done a lot of physical. You can't uh, do development, diving in ISO. You can't. Can you? you can't get upside down safely no. in a in in your house. So you know the nature of being inverted and making good decisions. So the better stuff you've measured for a long time and understand the benchmarks of that athlete Mm. the better you're going to understand with confidence as to what what you're stepping off into and yeah you know this one though i think i threw away at one stage to you you know this whole monitoring stuff it's not important until it becomes important and then it's the most important thing and that's that's what we're seeing like sports that have been doing a really good job of just tracking stuff and know this they're going to have much more confidence about where they're stepping off from. Another really good example is is you've got someone who's out after a head injury. So if you've been doing SCAT 5 assessments and you know what their pre-head injury SCAT is, um, which is not just a normal score, it's actually a complex. So SCAT 5 just quickly is a... It's a, it's a concussion screening tool that is rolled out predominantly in, um, in contact sports. So... It's well exercised in the AFL and the rugby league um, in Australia. But, I mean, there are heaps of sports that have head injury contact. Cycling is one of them. Um, And if you have someone who's been uh, removed from the sport for cognitive and physical rest and you're thinking about when to bring them back in, they need to have, you know, not only um, got uh, no red flags, got their visions back um, and ready to go again, but they need to be back on track with some of their... Um, complex thinking, some of their sleep, um, some of their decision-making, um, whether you can do certain things with numbers and words and um, some of the, the the different domains of the SCAT-5. And some of it's vestibular testing with a physio and other things um, are more quiz-based and some of them are a bit more holistic. But once you get some numbers on someone, if you know what they're like in in peak performance then you sort of know what they're safe to come back at otherwise you predispose people to other injury so if you've got slow reaction times and you go back and play a game of full afl football you're going to get hit again and you're going to get further injured so we know that there's a second injury risk yeah absolutely and i think sort of on this topic as well and something you mentioned the other day around a study for older athletes and their ability to warm up into activity um, and the need to ensure that they warm up properly because if they um, and and I don't know if you recall this but you can explain it better than I did but what I took from it is that you know potentially some athletes will think they're not ready to do a training session until they get um, to a certain point within the training session and then it it might become evident they're actually ready to do a peak performance but if you ask them beforehand they were feeling rubbish and that yeah, tends that to be more important around, with older athletes. That comment was around actually being a little bit critical about the RPE and how you feel when you wake up because, yes, we, we, we say that's an important factor but it's very different from in your different training phases. So we know that as athletes mature, they get quite good at reading their bodies and you get quite good at going, oh, I'm a bit tired today. And we do know that with older athletes that sometimes you can have an RPE that might be like, I feel like absolute rubbish this morning. But sometimes when they get going, the physiology warms up and you actually don't feel too bad and then you actually do perform quite well. So so I guess to, to the point of the multiple data sets, you know, they, there's one that might be a bit misleading, but maybe you have training consistency, training performance variability and some other things that indicate you know we should push on here and based on your history we know you're normally okay yeah mm. yeah it's an it's a interesting one and 
I can't remember if you were at the, at the dinner that we had at the Applied Physiology Conference last year. We had Professor Rob Orgy speak to our, our group. Um, you know, we're lucky we've been able to collaborate with, with Rob on a few of our PhD um, embedded projects at the VIS. And he was talking to us about um, athlete monitoring um, and sort of his perspectives. He's worked in the AFL and the university sector and so on. Um, and he put it really simply. Um, and he essentially said, you know, sometimes you feel good and you perform good. Sometimes you feel good and you perform bad and vice yeah. versa. Um, you know, so sometimes it's, it's understanding that and being aware of that, that, you know, you don't always feel amazing when you perform well. You don't always feel bad when you perform poorly and, and so on. So mm. it's getting a really good understanding of, of your body and not necessarily talking yourself out listening of something. Listening to your body but not listening to everything it tells but you. But if you, if you have other... <laughs> If you have many different perspectives on it, you're much less likely to be tricked, I suppose. Yeah. You're ironing out those potential glitches. And that, if you mentioned earlier, training consistency, well, these things can erode training consistency because they stop people from doing things they would otherwise go and do. So the, the more perspectives we have, the more confidence we have, the less chance we're going to miss doing things, the more consistency we have, the better performance ultimately over time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So the final part, Rod, is is the schematic you mentioned before um, at the back end, which is just understanding the context, understanding the athlete, and then understanding the load and the individual responses, and and almost like a it's like a, a decision map, isn't it, around the 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 way you might consider this within the interdisciplinary team? Yeah, in a sense, I guess it sort of goes through um, pretty much. In a, yeah, in a figure, a lot of the things that we've discussed. So, you know, understanding the the context. You know, what's the training history of this athlete? What's their you know injury history? What's the situation that they've been in at the moment? And this, I mean, this document is obviously we put it together around the COVID thing, but it's something that can be used in all um, areas when we're trying to reload um, athletes after a break. Um, you know, what were they able to do in their break? Did they completely? deload and they were doing nothing or were they just doing a, a percentage and what was the type you know all the things that we've discussed before um you know and then understanding okay well what's the dose what's the you know and something that often we we forget about as well that's discussed in a bit of detail here too is it you know again it's easy to um measure training load training load really simply put is you know how much did you do and how hard was it basically and often when we talk about load we just look at the number what the load was and you know it's measured in lots of different ways but you know let's say you've you've done a, a training load you know we we use um training peaks as an example in a lot of our sports and you did 700 pss for the week for argument's sake um now you can do that 700 tss in lots of different ways you could do no intensity and lots of really low intensity volume or you could do quite a low volume and really really high intensity and then you know anywhere in between so it's not just understanding the load but it was how was the load achieved mm. and again the specificity of that load what what sort of form did it take what movements were you doing and so on um and then yeah it's understanding the athlete and and how they're responding to that load how they're coping with it how they're adapting with it and then again sort of at the bottom it, it says you know was this an expected um response if yes carry on um if not revise no it is good yeah revise yeah. revise the plan point to get to if you expect someone to be tired then good <laughs> yeah keep going and, and it, it kind of goes to bill's it goes to bill's point earlier like 
you don't need this stuff until you need it. And yeah. but that being said, often with people in roles like you know, like mine, like a, you know, sports scientist or physio or physio, you're in the team. You're meant to be contributing to the team, and you feel like you need to be making a recommendation. And sometimes it's really hard to not make a recommendation. Um, you know, mm. if you're working in a program with a really experienced coach and really good experienced athletes, as, as you know, I was sort of lucky to be in this team. More often than not. Bill, you would sort of say how things are going and I'd be like, yeah, good. <laughs> like nothing really to add here. You kind of feel a little bit useless. So sometimes for the younger um, or earlier career practitioner in whichever realm, you know, they might feel the pressure to actually make yeah, – they see one small little thing and it's like, oh. Um, Is this that thing? Yeah, it's just that, this yeah, yeah, that I better, you know, I better, I better make a recommendation that we should do something. Um, but then it's sort of looking at this and I was sort of telling you guys before I was discussing this um, – in, in a real life scenario with an athlete and one of our physiologists um, who was sort of looking at some of the responses um, and thinking, oh, gee, should I, make a, should I make a change to their training? Or, and I sort of just asked that question. I brought up this schematic and I said, What's the tra- should they feel? Is this expected, how they're feeling at the moment? Oh, yeah, I guess, you know, mm. bringing them back, the load's a little bit higher than they have done. Just and sticking at yeah, it, having um, the confidence I was like, to see something through. Yeah, I was like, well, you know, what's the magnitude of some of these changes? Bring up some of these graphs. It's like, oh, yeah, a little bit outside of normal, but not that much. Like, mm. nothing huge. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess probably let's just carry on as planned. So, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I like the way that uh, ends up at the end point of the schematic. I just um, had a few thoughts about some of the things that, and, and maybe it's just the way that it's laid out, but there are sometimes occasions that you there's a clear hurdle requirement that someone has to jump on, jump over, sorry, to start this process. And that might be, for example, current example, someone, an athlete has contracted COVID-19. So they're actually out with the virus, right? So there's actually been um, some guidelines that have come into place about and really good articles from overseas about what how we should screen athletes to come back into sport because COVID-19 or um, SARS-CoV-2 is a really weird virus but we know it attacks epithelial cells so we know that while the lung lining gets affected it also makes you hypercoagulable with your blood so people um, are at risk of having pulmonary embolism and strokes and things like that, heart attacks. So you need to have cardiac screening before you come back in. So say the reason that someone was out was that they had um, COVID, then they actually need to have... A medical assessment they need to have an echo um halter monitor an ecg they need to have a full cardiac screen that's a hurdle to jump over to go back and another example might be someone's out with um a stress fracture and one of the requirements might be like an mri scan that shows a healed fracture before you can start reloading so i think there's sometimes that you take someone out that you actually have you're not training until we get over a certain hurdle and then we roll in again Mm, yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that I think that that has to be part of the on, ongoing considerations through any any break. And it, obviously, you're talking about things where there there's quite a significant reason why an athlete's having a break. But sometimes it can be as benign as yeah, the training venues shut down. Yeah, or uni exams, or yeah, exactly something like that. And the, I mean, the reality is, at the end of a season, at the end of the World Champs or the Olympics or whatever. Mm. Athletes take a well-deserved yeah. and well-needed break um, and then you start reloading again. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, you sort of just spoke to it, the, the individuality of how you would manage that and what testing and monitoring and prescription and so on that you would need to do can be completely different for different athletes in different circumstances and different sports and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get some uh, final thoughts in a moment, but um, thanks, Rod, for talking us through. It's an extensive um, piece of work has gone into this to summarise so much into, you know, essentially, what is it, nine pages, but but effectively sort of about five or six pages of the guff, some thank yous and a nice little logo on the front to, to make sure that it's flashy. Yep. Um, but, yeah, we might, we might just have a quick breather and then come back with some final thoughts. Slapping the bass. <laughs> so... Dr. Mac, any, <laughs> any, any final thoughts from you? Oh, no, only that it, it's brilliant. Like um, you always thought, oh, God, surely the numbers that I'm getting told uh, aren't the whole story. And I think a, a shift away from the acute chronic training ratio is really good and having, having the multidisciplinary or, sorry, interdisciplinary input um, between um, that's that's sort of led by the coach because they're your first port of call as an athlete, but you've also got the input from all the different teams. Um, fantastic, and yeah, it's actually summarised very very well in a very succinct way, yeah. unlike our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Rodney, first episode, and she's already, already oh, taking no. pot shots. At yeah. us. things were a lot smoother. When it was it's a sign of things to come. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, like, I've just got the page open here that has the acknowledgements of all the people that contributed to it. And I look at the names there. That was one of the cool things, sort of being able to work with some of these yeah. people to, to to put this together. And, you know, yeah, seeing these names, there's no... How many years of experience would yeah, be on that paper? Yeah, exactly. And I'd be one of the, the least by yeah. far there. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that was really cool. And, and I guess, yeah, just a cool thing I th- thought that came out of it was it, this is not a prescription thing it's not like here you go read this and now and follow the rules that we that we put in here and and away you go you'll never be able to make a mistake here it's much more around these are some things to consider every sport is different every athlete is different there's no formula for this um but if you consider these things and plan for them carefully you're going to put the athlete that you're working with at a much better stead to be able to achieve their their performance goals Mm. yeah and, and yeah, really well said. And I think we're very lucky to have you. I know how much work you put into it, Rod, to, to be able to talk us through this. Um, and I look at those names across all those disciplines and I, I just think about this document. I, I wonder if I was an athlete and I was listening to this, I'd be thinking, oh, my God, really, all this stuff? The point is that there's a lot of complex thinking that needs to happen so that things can be relatively simple in the, in the training environment. Oh, yeah. So you get dished out a training program and you just do it. Well, not, not that you just get dished it out, but there's some, there needs to be – I think people get scared of actually digging into this, but the complex thinking needs to happen outside of the performance space so that performance can be relatively simple. And what I think this acknowledges and, and, and probably talks through is the significant amount of stuff that might be considered so that then when we actually get that – when we spun it around to the funnel and the performance – options come out to the athletes and the coaches it's relative it's very well considered it's pretty succinct and it's easy for the coach and the athlete to get on with the performance um 
from that point. And, and I think this really shows the amount of complexity that is considered in making things simple. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me really probably of when I first started working in the program and I'll never forget this. I was sitting on the watt bike with Alice Mack and with our favourite athlete, Jennifer Cleary, um, and Fiona Elbert as well, one. Um, one of our other faves. And, um, and unfortunately, Mac was there as well. And I'll never forget the moment that we got buy-in to, to really be able to do some of this monitoring stuff. And it was, we were talking about, you know, you guys get dished out a training program and you do it, everything you're asked to the best of your capability. Um, and so if you don't perform really well, a huge part of that is because of you know Bill and I and the rest of the, the support team who really are trying to put these things in place for you to do. You get a bit of paper that says this is the training and you go ahead and you do it. Um, but by you know wearing your heart rate monitor, doing some of the testing with John, doing the testing with Fuxi, doing you know taking your heart rate variability in the morning, etc., that gives us more information to make smarter, well more well thought out decisions of what goes into that bit of paper. And then as we adjust it on the fly, that hopefully means that you get a better for performance and so by i guess at that time and i was realizing it i was as i was saying it too it's like well yeah if you don't go well that's in large part my fault too just as much as it is yours mm. and i think you guys sort of seeing that i'm trying to take a bit of um you know responsibility for, for that skin in the game yeah skin yeah. In, the, in the game and at that point you know you guys were kind of like yeah well great then here's that information, mm. you better get it right. Um, that and was always the huge motivation to actually produce the data because if you knew that it was going to be used for creation of the training program, then you'd do it. And there's nothing worse than as an athlete being told, wear this watch, do this daily monitoring and Fill no one thing reads out. it. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's got to be relevant and it's got to be looked at and then implemented. Yeah. And to Bill's point, all that little Im- – information that was coming through i was thinking about it you know i'd be riding my bike into work thinking about the numbers that i'd been looking at and all those sorts of things i'd get in i'd chat to john and then bill would come in from a rowing session we'd talk about it we'd adjust things we'd revise our plans etc we put it down and hopefully at the end of it, it was fairly simple and you could just get on with your job of, of training hard and training effectively yeah. um, but a lot of thought and discussion and planning and measuring and so on went on behind the scenes to create that simple output at, at the end yeah mm. and you know and i think this this unique period of time in in the world and in this little world of sport that we operate in is going to expose some amazing decision making around that and it's going to probably expose some really bad decisions and some and there's going to be some blow-ups and i guess what we all hope and what what you guys have aspired at the AIS to do by putting this together is to make sure we have the best chance of getting that complex thinking happening before things run away from us so it's not going to prevent us from having any of those hiccups but it, it hopefully lowers the probability yeah that's the plan and yeah you're never going to prevent all injuries but you can hopefully you know with a little bit of consideration and, and good planning at the individual level you can minimize them yeah well, and again, as you said at the beginning, it's all about performance. That's what we're all trying to do. We're not here to um, minimise injuries. We're here to perform. So Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly keeping that right. front of mind. Well, first episode back, guys. Play um, song. Yeah, we will. But, um, a bit rusty, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a big topic to, ta- to tackle first up. And, um, you know, I think we've done a, a good job. And, you know, Rod, yeah, thanks, thanks for, for um, bringing so it forward. Get to chat through.
Yeah, no, it's been great. Good fun. We'll hopefully have you back here in the Bayside studio shortly. Yeah. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to our Facebook channel, The Bro Show Podcast. Uh, Give us a few likes. Try and pump us up. Send us out to your mates and hopefully we'll be back again soon with another episode.